Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. We've been in this series on living for God in an ungodly culture. And so it's been a great challenge. We've allowed the Word of God to shape us, to change us, to alter maybe even our own mindsets. And so as we've been in this series, we've, it's been tremendous as God has really spoken to us. And we've, we've asked God through His Word to transform us. And God has reminded us and that He's called us to stand. He's called us to be people of conviction and people that stand strong in an ungodly culture. It's important to understand that the ungodly culture is not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And God has placed you at this point and this time to be the ones to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ through your life. But we are called to stand. And so God has called us not to compromise. To not give in to the demands of the ungodly culture that, that it is controlled by the enemy. That we are only, and hear me today, to bow and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. In this series that we've, been, that we've been in, we've asked God to reveal to us the ways that we have been indoctrinated by culture. And the areas of our thought life and the areas of our beliefs that we have allowed culture to replace truth in our minds. That, that we didn't even realize we had exchanged truth for actually lies. And we have been indoctrinated. I've just, I, I, for me personally, I've enjoyed allowing God to, to get out the things in my mind and my heart that, that really aren't for me as a follower of Jesus. And so we've learned from Daniel how to stand when an ungodly culture demands total submission. We've been reminded that the Bible, which, now hear me today, which is what true followers of Jesus believe as the truth, not a truth, the truth. It's not my truth, it's the truth. And so true followers of Jesus approach the Bible as truth, not, not partial truth. Well, some of it's true and some of it's not. Not truth, well, it's, it was, it, that was truth in that culture at that time, but it's not truth today. That's not what followers of Jesus, that's not how we approach the Bible. Not truth to be treated like a, a trip to the grocery store where we kind of just wheel our cart of life through the, through the, you know, the different aisles of, of our options and we choose what our truth is and because it suits our taste, therefore that must be truth and we leave with that. That is not what true followers of Jesus, how we approach the Bible. It is the truth. It's not to be altered, adjusted to justify my life choices, but, but, but my life choices as a true follower of Jesus are to be altered to fit the word of God. And that we are to submit under the word of God. Now this doesn't mean I, I don't, we don't have temptations. It doesn't mean we don't have desires that, that we're trying to figure out, oh no, I mean, is, is, is this right? Is it wrong? But it does mean that the Bible shows me if I am to act on those desires or act on those temptations, and God uses the Bible to lead me, to lead me as his son, to lead you as his child to what he calls real life, 
life to the fullest, life that is full of joy and peace and happiness, life that is anointed by the Holy Spirit to live victoriously. That is what the Bible gives us a roadmap to, is that life. And us as true followers of God, hear me today, we are never to rewrite, which is really tragic that there are people who say they're followers of Jesus, but they choose to rewrite the inspired, inherent, infallible Word of God to fit me or fit them. But as a true follower of Jesus, I am to see the Word of God as the greatest life God wants me to live. Are we perfect? No. But does the Word of God help us shape and be conformed into the image of Christ? Yes, and for the rest of our lives, until you step into the grave, you're going to be conformed, but you are going to experience more and more great joy and peace and real life as you continue to walk the journey with the Lord in the Word of God. Amen? It is what I live from, the Bible, and by the grace of God, it shows me the kind of life I actually get to live That he's the one that saves me. He's the one that conforms me. He's the one that chose me. And he's the one that gives me the ability to submit my life under the word. That that as a child of God, I'm no longer a slave to sin. And the Bible washes my mind from the teachings and the indoctrination of my old slave master, the devil. I am no longer his slave. I am a servant of the Most High God. But as believers, we are called to stand. We're called to live righteously. We're called to be the example for the broken world to see that, oh, that's a different life. And so, We have been in a season of Christianity, particular in the U.S., but probably in Europe and other places where there was no distinction of the church to the world that was lost. And so when the world began to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God wants a change in their life, that God wants to do something in their life, they look to the church. But when they look at the church, their life looks just like their life. And so what's the point? There's no distinction. And so we as followers of Jesus submitted to the word. We have recommitted our submission to the word that we are going to live the life that God has called us to live. We remember again, we are not just called to stand, but we're called to reach the hurting and the broken with the love and the truth and the kindness of the one that we serve. We are to remain non-compromising, but we are to be intentional about sharing God's heart and his purpose for their life. And the truth is this, church, God, actually Jesus never said We are called to be the salt of the church. He said we are called to be the salt of the earth. We come to church to get a little bit more salty. Not a a bad attitude, but more salty as in you you make things better. We come to church to, to, to get more salty, to hear the word, to grow together. And then we go into the world and to on the earth to sow the salt, to be what heals and restores and preserves and makes better. Jesus never said that the church is called 
to be the light of the church. He says we're called to be the light of the world. We come to, to allow our lights to become brighter, and then we go and be what he's called us to be. And so as we lean into this today, I'm going to land the plane on this series today. And we looked at first out of Daniel on how to stand in an ungodly culture. And we've looked for the last three weeks from the life of Jesus. How did he stand and reach those in an ungodly culture? And so we want to learn from this. And so we come to John chapter 8 today. That's where we're going to be. And as Jesus has saved us and God has saved us through his son Christ, we now partner with him. So we're going to learn how is it that God wants to use you to serve those around you, to reach those around you without compromising. So in John chapter 8, I want to set it up a little bit. It's early in the morning, in the beginning of this passage, and we'll read in just a moment. The streets of Jerusalem, the sun was beginning to shimmer off of the dew that had fallen on the cobble streets. And it's probably moisture on, on, the, on the cobble streets. It's a little slippery as the, the, the donkeys would walk through, they'd probably slip. But it was quiet in Jerusalem. It, it's first thing in the morning. The shops are beginning to open. The smell of the burning incense is still kind of hanging in the air a little bit from the temple. And you begin to hear some conversations and movements that are happening as, as the city is waking up. And on this quiet morning, the voice of Jesus can be heard in the temple teaching. And we come to this passage out of John chapter 8, and we begin to lean into it. At dawn, Scripture says, he appeared again, meaning Jesus appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I want to lean into this today and tell the story. And hopefully open our hearts to see things a little differently. And then at the end of this, I want to give you the practical ap application of it. But I, I, I'd like for you to kind of submerge yourself in Jerusalem this quiet morning. So in the beginning of this passage, Jesus is teaching. Now, what's we don't know what he was teaching about. That's not the point in this chapter. So there must be a greater point that God wants us to receive. If, if it's not the teaching of Jesus, the greatest teacher of all times, if that's not the most important part, then what is? What we do know is Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the teaching, there's a commotion. It's like if someone kicked open those back doors and began this commotion, everybody would turn and look. It's, it, it disrupts Jesus' teaching. But all of a sudden, in the commotion comes in, we're, we're introduced to a, to a woman who's not an influential leader. She's not a city official. She's not a, a superstar. She's not somebody that, that, oh, this will give credibility to, to Jesus. No. This is an adulteress. So Jesus is interrupted by this commotion and 
And with her are these people called the Pharisees, religious leaders with them have brought this woman. And these Pharisees think they're really something. They, they, they walk around like they're better than everybody else. Why? Because they know the Bible. And they walk around and they, 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 they dress the part and they, they look the part. They, even, they talk the talk. They know the Bible, but their hearts are void of the spirit of the one who wrote the Bible. But they know it. And they used God's word as an excuse to hate. These religious leaders hated Jesus. They hated him. They wanted to control people. They wanted to shame people. They wanted to condemn people. But here comes Jesus, this rabbi that came preaching the grace of God, the kindness of God. Here came Jesus, the one loving those that they had rejected and get out of here. But they also hated him because Jesus preached another message to them. He called them out in their hypocrisy. He said, hey, listen, you look good on the outside, but your inside is like a grave full of dead flesh and it stinks. You look good. You're wearing, yeah, I know it. You know, you know what to say. You know how to live. You know how to cross all the T's and dot all the I's on the outside, but your heart is full of bones. And they despise Jesus. So here's this woman. I want you just to try to keep your imagination engaged, who's, who's dragged in front of the crowd around Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what she has felt like and feeling at this moment? Yes, maybe some of us men could understand maybe what she felt, but every woman in this room can begin to feel the, the embarrassment of this moment, what she might have felt. Now, she never denies the allegations. She knew she was guilty. Her hair was a mess. Her garment was dirty from the struggle, maybe even bloody from the, flight, from the fight. She's angry. She's barefoot. And the look on her face as she's surrounded by these accusing men was one of humiliation, one of pain, one of shame. In Judaism, there are three crimes that were worthy of capital punishment. Idolatry, murder, and adultery. So if, if it could be proven you were guilty of any three of those crimes, you could be put to death. But there was interpretations of the law. And one of the interpretations that some of the Jews preferred was called the Mishnah. It's the handbook of traditions that they would write and, and they would say, oh, in this case you would do this, in this case you would do that. In this case, this is how someone would be, would be killed or this is how someone would be punished. But the Mishnah taught that the man who was caught in adultery would be treated differently than the woman who was caught. If a man was caught he was to be placed in animal dung up to his knees, a rope looped around his neck with a man on each side holding the rope with a, with a towel underneath the rope on the neck so that when the man was strangled, it wouldn't leave a mark. And so once everything was in place, then the two men 
with the two opposite sides of the rope on two, and the two opposite sides of the man called an adultery, they would pull with all of their might the opposite direction until the adulterer was dead. The Mishnah also taught that if a woman was called an adultery, she was to be stoned to death. But there was also a superior law to the Mishnah called the Law of Moses, which is the Torah, which we would be very familiar with. And the Jews of that day lived by the Torah. And the Torah taught that if a woman was caught in adultery in the city, she was to be stoned. If she was caught in adultery on the countryside, she was not to be stoned or killed because she could have cried for help and nobody would have known it. So maybe she could have been raped. But in the city, she could have cried for help, but she didn't. Therefore, she's going to be stoned and die. This is a very bleak situation for this woman. It was like in this moment, God interrupted to show us, to teach us something about our own hearts and how he wants us to live our life. This also is a moment that God is teaching you his heart through his son to reach you. So they bring the woman before Jesus and starting in verse 3 says, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I want you to see this for a moment. I want you to, to capture this. This moment, everything had just happened. It was the commotion moving through the streets out of a house somewhere to, the, to where Jesus was. And the, and the Bible says that she was caught in the act of adultery. So she was literally pulled from the act of sin. And she is still within their grip that, that caught her and pulled her. And she's brought and dragged to Jesus, not for biblical clarity, not for justice, not for mercy, not to help her, but to trap Jesus. It actually had nothing to do with her. These men were using this woman as a piece of meat to bait Jesus. Now, when you read this, I don't know if you've ever had this question. I've always asked the question, where is the man? He had to be there. But he wasn't here before Jesus. Some options could be maybe he escaped. Another option, maybe they let him escape. Another option is he might be standing there with the Pharisees, the, one of the ones accusing her. Maybe this whole thing was this elaborate plan that they thought, you know what, I can, I, I'll go ahead and commit adultery, but it's for a greater good, and that's to trap Jesus. He could have been standing right there as one of her accusers. And so they say, hey, Jesus, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? Now, I want you to see this dilemma for a moment. Now, Jesus is brilliant. They've tried to trap him several times. And every time he discerns their heart and he navigates it, this one is very difficult. And I'll tell you why. If he says stone her, then he's been spending his ministry trying to, to tell the people around that, that God isn't like the Pharisees. So if he says stone her, then he's no different than the Pharisees. 
Also, Rome was the governing power of Israel, which demanded no other authoritative figure could carry out capital punishment except for Rome. So if he said that, if he said stoner, and then they did, then he would be guilty of treason. And if Jesus said, actually, let her go, get your hands off of her, then he would be breaking the law of Moses. This was a trap. Now, Jesus has to give an answer. This is the moment before all these people, before the woman who was filled with emotions and fear and anger and embarrassment and shame and pain. He has to give an answer to the Pharisees who are filled with rage, hatred, with smirks on their faces, waiting for the gotcha moment for Jesus. And then Jesus has to give an answer before the people he was just teaching. And so this is what Jesus does. The beginning of verse 6, it says, Jesus bent down and started to write with his finger on the ground. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, there's this really fine dirt, which is really, a lot of it's sand. And you can write in a corner of, of where, the, where the wind is blown, a collection of sand or dirt, or you can go to an open lot, and you can also do the same. It's early in the morning, so there is dew on the ground, which would actually make the words a little bit more distinct because if, if the ground is a, a little damp. So Jesus begins to write. Now, at first, if you were standing there, you think, look, Jesus is buying time. He's stumped. He doesn't know what to do. Or you think maybe he's doodling? I mean, is this like, is he playing hangman? Like, what's going on here? Tic-tac-toe? What's he doing? Or maybe some of the people there, they, did he not hear the question? This is, a, this is a big answer. Like, we need to hear this. But the word right actually is not about doodling. It's not about he was just playing in the, in the sand. It means actually to intentionally write something. This is an intentional act of, of writing something. Like if I said I, I wrote on the wall or I wrote on the chalkboard, you would receive that quite differently than I marked the wall or marked on the chalkboard. This was an intentional thing he was writing. And there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus wrote. Everybody's got their speculation and their thoughts, and some of them are interesting. But because of the text and because of the, what happens, I believe that Jesus, my personal opinion, believe that Jesus began to write out the list of the sins of the woman's accusers. And so as he bent down and he begins to write and he begins to, to write this, whatever it is, their sins down. We don't know what they were. As he did, verse 7 says, they kept questioning him. Tell us, Jesus, what's your answer? We don't have all day. Tell us the answer. Why are you taking so long? The answer is obvious, Jesus. You're, you're a blasphemer. That's why you're not giving the answer according to the law of Moses. What I love about Jesus, he didn't, he didn't respond to their demand, but he did keep writing. Now, we don't know how long he wrote. We don't know the timeline, but what we do know is what he could write, what he wrote. The Pharisees could read it, and so could everyone else, including this woman. As he continued to write, I am, I am imagining the questions became 
less and less. The demand from the Pharisees became less and less. And I imagine it went from questions filled with hatred and bitterness and demands and hate to silence. I don't know if you can imagine the awkward silence at that moment. Then Jesus stood up and he looked them in the eyes. And if we could interview one of them today, I guarantee you they would say, it was as if his eyes pierced my soul. And so Jesus, after riding on the ground, says, okay, let any of you, any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead, stone her. And the one without sin, go ahead, go first, do it. This is a moment that Jesus turned their hypocritical lives inside out and laid them exposed on the ground for everybody to see. And one by one, you begin to hear the thud of the rocks once clenched in their angry hands hit the ground. The once puffed out chest and arrogant smirk is now a cowering frame. And as they're backing up into the, into the side streets of Jerusalem, their faces shadow by their own hand. And now, the moment. There's only two people left. Two people that couldn't be any different. They are so different. Standing face to face. A man and a woman. The son of God and an adulteress who was just caught moments ago. The one who had the right to, to, to condemn and the one who deserved condemnation. The one who could condemn her didn't and the one that wanted to couldn't. And Jesus looks at her. Still tattered and still ashamed and still her hair a mess, her garments dirtied and soiled. And he says to this woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Now listen, listen to how she responds. She didn't say no. She says, no, Lord. In her brokenness, in her pain and her mistakes, in her public shame, she calls Jesus Lord. Why would Jesus love me? Why would, I'm an adulteress. But she's just witnessed what he's done for her and how he stood for her. And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Was she wrong? Was she guilty? 
Was she sinful? Yes, absolutely. Was she a victim of her own brokenness? Yes. Was she condemned by Jesus? No. But she was saved by him. Friends, when you are living for God in an ungodly culture, you're going to have options on how to respond to people in need of forgiveness like this woman. And you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose how, how you're going to respond to someone who looks differently than you. You're going to have to choose to, how to respond to someone that their sin is on display. You're going to have to choose how you're going to extend love and grace to someone that most Christians would write off. Because when you live for God in an ungodly culture, you bump up against people who are hurting, who are broken, who have been victims of the enemy, who weren't taught truth when they grew up, when they, yeah, when they were growing up, who weren't taught truth in school, they were actually indoctrinated, who weren't taught truth at university. Their, their frame of truth, their reference of truth is all over the map. And you will have an opportunity to reach them. What, what are these three options that usually we have when we encounter people in need of God's forgiveness. Because before I get to them, listen, you, the people in your life, God selected you for your life to intersect with them because you are the voice of love and the gospel that he wants to use. So how do we respond? Well, our first option is we can condemn them like the Pharisees. And this first option sounds, maybe the belief of this is, listen, you're too far gone. You're too sinful. That lifestyle is too bad. You're too broken. You're too flawed. Get out of here. I condemn you. This is what we see in the Pharisees. Listen, I can condemn you. I know the Bible. You're a sinner. Get out of here. You filthy trash. Get out of here. These people, they pray God's judgment on people instead of praying God's mercy on people. These people don't look for opportunity to share the love and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They look for opportunities to say, my Bible says this and you are condemned. And they use the Bible for hate just like the Pharisees. The second option, we can condone. We get this in Christianity as well. We get the first one as well. We also get this one. It's okay. God loves you. God is love. You can continue to sin and God doesn't care. He loves you. Listen, God wants you to be happy. And since you have a desire, it must mean that that desire is what will make you happy. God isn't concerned about your holiness. He's just concerned about your happiness. 
The people who condone those in need of forgiveness are ones who rewrite the Bible. They're the ones that say, no, that's not what the Bible means. They say, no, that's what it meant in that culture, but not this culture. No, it's okay. No, that scripture doesn't mean that. It actually means this. And we have these, this one book that's written by somebody that's justifying their own lifestyle. But that's okay. And they condone. And many Christians, even, I'll say this, even churches today celebrate the sin in people's lives. Affirm it. Celebrate Both are horribly wrong. Condemn, condone. There must be another way. And we see it in Jesus. Number three. The third option is compassionate confrontation. And if we can, I just sense God wants to do something here. And so if we could just turn the keys up just a little bit. Just, I, I just want us to, to allow God to move here. This third option, compassionate confrontation. What does that sound like? Well, the first one is you're too far gone. The second one is you're just fine the way you are. You don't need to change. Just receive Jesus. You're fine. The third one is you are loved by God but you were in need of forgiveness. Jesus never condemned her. Jesus never condoned her behavior. It's fine. But you know what he did do? He took a step and he interacted with her with compassionate confrontation. He confronts her. He shows her there's a better way. He doesn't compromise his beliefs. He doesn't compromise what is true. He, he, he is righteous and he stands in his righteousness, but he extends his grace to her. Compassion, but confronting. He didn't justify her sin, neither did she. But he saved her. She was aware she needed to be saved. He shows her, I have a better life for you. You need to repent. And after she calls him Lord, he then tells her, now go and sin no more. He didn't say go and keep doing it. He didn't say, you filthy, adulterous woman. He said, now go and sin no more. In other words, you were forgiven. And now it's time to walk the life that I'm going to provide for you. Compassion, confrontation. This option tells those without Jesus that God so loved them that he sent his son, that God so loved them and wanted to rescue them from their sin, that there was a penalty for their sin. And Jesus paid the price for it. Jesus took upon himself that which you deserved. He took upon the, the punishment that you deserved from God. He took upon him the sin of your adulterous affair, the sin 
of your cheating and your stealing from your company. He took upon himself the sin of your lustful thoughts. He took upon him the sin of your drunkenness. He took upon the sin of your drug use. He took upon the sin of the hatred in your heart and the sin of your choices to flippantly do whatever you want and to treat people and to abuse people. He took upon that sin. There was a penalty. But sweetheart, the penalty's been paid. You're free. Don't let, no, no, that's not who you are anymore. Now go. You don't have to live that life. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. I tell you who your identity is. And you're my daughter. I love you. Now go and live your life knowing that the God of the universe is delighted in you. Compassionate confrontation. This is how we reach those around us. We don't condemn them. We don't condone. But we do lovingly, compassionately confront. In the right moment, at the right time. And we just lean in. Hey, you need forgiveness. Just like I need forgiveness. I'm just a beggar telling another beggar where to get bread and I found forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be forgiven? No? Okay. I love you. Do you want to be forgiven? Yes. Okay. Let me pray with you. It's that simple, church. Those in your life are put there so you can compassionately share the gospel of Jesus Christ that still tells them they're lost, but as you tell it, you remind them, so were you. And it's by the grace of God that you're saved today. This is how we live for God in an ungodly culture. We follow his example. If you were to choose which one of those three, would you want God or to interact with you? Would you want other people to interact with you? How you would want them to, you would choose number three. How about this? Let's choose number three. But let's choose it. Because there are people in your life that need what's inside of you. Let's pray. Father, we commit to you today your word that challenges, heals us. We're so grateful. Lord, today I pray that you would forgive us. If there's anyone in this room, God, that has condemned those that you wanted to show compassionate confrontation through, but they condemned, maybe out of ignorance, maybe because they thought that's what they were to do. They were following what man does, not what the Son of God does. Lord, forgive us. Lord, also today, there are some here today and joining online that actually you have been condemned. 
church is a bad memory for you because you have been condemned, you were condemned, you were judged, you were treated harshly. You felt as though that, like the Pharisees, that you were drug out and exposed and uncovered and shamed and guilted. Today, the Lord wants you to know that is not who he is. And don't allow the actions of people to keep you from me and to keep you from my church. Maybe today you've been indoctrinated by culture and you have thought, you know what, the way I love is just to condone, to receive, and just to tell them it's okay. And you thought, this is how I guess I'm to love, that I just, I'm never to, to share that they need Jesus. I'm never to share that it's not about their sin. Actually, it's not about their individual sins. It's about their sin that they were born with, that they need to be forgiven and cleansed. Lord, forgive any of us here that have condoned sinful behavior that you call sin. We never want to be in opposition to your word and forgive us. And maybe you're here today that you have been living in sin and also saying that you're following Jesus. And today you recognize you have believed a lie. And the Lord wants to call your name today and restore dignity and set you on a path that he has chosen for you. And he today tells you to go and sin no more, but he also gives you the ability to sin no more. This is all about his grace. So Lord, we receive that today. Lord, today we thank you that you came to us with compassionate confrontation. And we First off, we want to say thank you. Thank you for not shaming us. Thank you for not devaluing us. Thank you for helping us see that we, were, we are so much more than our sin and our brokenness. Thank you, Lord, that you, as you brought us in, to your kingdom and your family, you gave us a purpose to share. Lord, may we leave here today recognizing you've called us to stand and to reach. In Jesus' name. Just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If you're here today and you would recognize that you do not know Jesus, that you have been living maybe a lie or living outside of the Word of God and you, and you want to give your life to Jesus, it could be rededicating, it could be for the first time, but you want to walk in the cleansing power of Jesus and go and be who God's called you to be. If you want to receive that today, nobody's looking around, just raise your hand right now and just raise it up before the Lord. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just hold your hands up. Thank you. God bless you. You can put your hands down. Many of you raised your hand. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to pray it with you because we all need it. 
And so let's pray, church. Say, Lord Jesus, cleanse my heart. Remove any indoctrination that is there. I put my trust in you today. Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. And I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you were buried for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead for me to give me life. I receive today forgiveness from you. I align my life with you. And I choose today that I will go and sin no more with your help. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, let's give God a hand today. Amen. If you gave your life to Jesus today, right in front of you is a connect card. If you could fill that out, check the little box, gave my life to Jesus. Now listen, I want you to do this because I want to help you take that next step in your faith. You can't do it alone. You need to do it with other believers. God didn't call you to live for him alone. He called you to live with a community, a church. And so you can check that box and you can drop it off when you leave and we'll get you information. I'll send you a letter this week congratulating you on that step. Church, let's all stand to our feet. It's been a good day, hasn't it? It's been a good day. I'd love, I'd love the opportunity to pray for you and to bless you today. And if you can, just lift your hands to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessing over every person here and joining us online. God, I pray for your favor on their life. I pray for provision in their finances. I pray for opportunity that you are going to open. And God, show them that opportunity. God, I pray that you would heal their hearts of any brokenness today. That they would begin to walk out what it means to forgive. What it means to receive forgiveness. Lord, may you restore marriages that might be fractured. May you restore relationships between father and mother and children. God bless us today. And may we leave here understanding we are walking as your agents and missionaries to the world. And Lord, when we leave, may we understand we are entering our mission field while also continuing to be healed and restored ourselves. In Jesus' name, we all say amen and amen. God bless you.